for another episode of space and 60 and the guys are back we are here yes we are andrew polipchuk chad baker and clint Grauman here today to bring on one of our very first guests that are deep into the venture capital for space sector like we've had people from all sorts of tech we've had founders from different companies. We've had people that have worked in government and academia, but this is our first like deep venture capital guest today. And I can't wait to talk with our guest today. That's Mike Pelink. No, I'm definitely excited about this because I think it's going to be very different from the normal kind of talking about tech, but how how this tech kind of starts off and kicks off. Well, it's it's the foundation and, and the financing behind the tech, right? So it's, uh, but I think at the end of the day, it's it's a people business. Starting a company, you got to have good people around you, and that extends to good finance people and not just technology people. So, a good network that brings you those good people. Exactly. This is this is going to be a great conversation. I'm excited too. Yeah. So, welcome to the show. Can't wait to get into this. Thanks for joining us, Mike Pelling from Mac Venture Capital. So, Mike, it only took us like four months to get you on the show, but you're here. Well, technically, I think it took a week after you said, when are you coming on? <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. But like, we're we're super excited to have you on the show. This is only the second pod, third podcast I've ever done. And the first ever talking about anything related to space. Yeah, well, space is, space is easy, we hear. So this should be super easy for you to get through today. <laughs> No problems with space at all. No, just ask Astra. Yeah, yeah, that was a Astra had a tough week this week. He did. You're the the very first from the world of venture capital that we've had on the show. You've got an intense interest in space, and we're looking forward to to get your perspective on the market, on space startups. Like we're really looking forward to it. I can't wait. I love talking about this stuff. Yeah, just wait till you talk to these guys. Yeah, we'll we'll knock that excitement <laughs> yeah. Yeah, level yeah. down a couple of notches. No, no, we'll 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 <laughs> dial it up a notch. <laughs> up, 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 come on, Chad. I hope I don't ruin it for for all VCs. Remember, all sales graphs go this way. And in case you couldn't see that, Andrew was pointing straight up. Like they all look the same, right? Every pitch looks exactly the same. I mean, we're a country of hockey sticks here, so we're pros at this. Yeah, we should have told you that's our Canadian friend. Um, so. <laughs> yeah, Canadian <laughs> keep on a short financial leash. model. The the Canadian financial model is hockey stick. Is hockey I would stick. appreciate once if I did see a financial pro- projection and it was up and then down and then up and just like someone's like, I actually tried to model it how it might actually work out. That's not a very good hockey stick though. But it's not. It wouldn't fit the hockey stick. <laughs> so where are you calling in from today, Mike? Los Angeles. This is my office slash man cave slash workout room. How's the venture capital market like developing in in LA? Like you always hear about the Valley, Silicon Valley, um, but it seems like there are quite a few more VCs coming out of LA than there have been in the past. 
For sure. Yeah, I think LA is the next, you know, is the next great ecosystem or one of the next great ecosystems for a lot of reasons, which is why I did a career pivot about 10 years ago to work directly in the LA tech ecosystem. But yeah, you know, there were a lot of knocks on LA, you know, certainly 10 years ago, even five years ago, that it wasn't a real tech ecosystem. You know, Silicon Valley is legendary and I think it will always be. I think there's a lot of issues up there with crime and and taxes and just a whole lot of things, but it's Silicon Valley. I mean, they created all of this. There's a really great book called The Power Law that I read that really traced the history of, of kind of tech innovation and venture capital sort of by association and sort of mapped it out and, and kind of tried to explain why in this, you know, this little valley did everything sort of originate like what was it about about this location and and you know that that birthed the whole tech ecosystem but la is a great one and i think it's it's great because you know in large part because we're a very diverse city you know people sort of associate los angeles with hollywood and it's certainly a big part of the culture in la but you know, we have the Long Beach port, one of the largest ports, you know, in the world. So it's a it's a logistical hub. It's a hub for fashion. There's a fashion district, a lot of importing from overseas, the raw materials, you know, it's an art and cultural hub. And now it's become a tech hub. And it's always been a space hub, right? I mean, people forget about that. You know, the Apollo era, there's just so much history down in, you know, Segundo and Hawthorne which to me is most exciting. I feel like that never really gets mentioned when people talk about all the great things about LA. It's like glazed over. It's glazed over. It's like, how, like, did you, I mean, you know, people always, I mean, there's one word that they always use to describe, you know, Hawthorne and it's sleepy and it sort of feels sleepy. And maybe that's why it's been glossed over is they're not like banging their chest, like, you know, crypto bros in Miami, like we're the best tech or something, but like, <laughs> Let's let's tap on that one for a second. What's a crypto bro? Well, somebody who's crying today, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, I went to Art Basel last December and I had never been and Art Basel sort of become like crypto central. And there were like these nerdy ass looking dudes with like diamond studded Rolexes arm in arm with a woman that was at least one foot taller than them with huge fake boobs, <laughs> like rolling out of like a Rolls Royce Phantom. And I'm like, what the hell is this? Like, you don't even know what the world is. Like, to me, that's a crypto bro. <laughs> Very loud on social media. And, you know, I, I never got into the NFT craze. I was actually sort of a, a bear on it. And, you know, if you state those opinions publicly online, the crypto bros come after you like you're some kind of moron. Oh, it's true. And, it's you know, true. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, it's like, well, maybe, maybe I wasn't so wrong. Yeah. Where we're even a broken clock is right twice. I was just going to say that <laughs> and, you know, where, where most of a lot of the VC ecosystem was pouring all this money into crypto and raising billion dollar funds to just do crypto and web three investing. And I want to be clear, like, I think there's like a true value to the underlying technology and what it empowers. But, you know, you know, Axie Infinity was like, oh, this is it. You know, it's this kind of web three based game, play to earn model. And Dreesen Horowitz threw a ton of money into it and a lot of others did. And Bloomberg just did an article two, two or three days ago, just sort of exposing it for kind of being a fraud in a way. And I found space and I'm like, this is much more exciting 
and to me, much more impactful than bored apes or crypto punks. Like the fate of humanity, no joke, is sort of dependent upon what we're doing in the space ecosystem. I don't know what bored apes will do for humanity, but you know, I know <laughs> what everyone over here building in space is going to do. It's our long-term survival. It's understanding of our planet. It's our national defense. You know, it's all these things. And and like, why is crypto getting all the attention? It's sort of infuriating. Even when we're fundraising, you know, LPs, the people that give us money are kind of asking a lot about crypto. And it's like, why aren't you more in space? Like, why aren't you thinking more about that? Why aren't you putting more value in the fact that we're, you know, building a really great space investment practice? Yeah. You know, I, I've been looking forward to this interview all week. Like you've really dialed in on the space industry. And and I also admit in the last three minutes, I've expanded my vocabulary by a factor of 10 on the different segments of crypto bros and and like all of this. But, you know, I'm really interested to hear how someone like makes a pivot like you have into the space industry and built up this great space portfolio. How did you get into this business, Mike? Yeah, I have a very atypical background. Clint, I think we've talked about this, that I uh, I still have imposter syndrome. But early on, you know, in meeting space founders, you know, I, I gave my background, but it, I was, it was with hes- hesitancy. And, and I just sort of felt, man, they're going to really ask themselves, why the hell am I talking to this guy? Which in turn drove me, I think, to work harder and study more and really become as much of a student of the industry as I could be. And I'm still, I'll never, I think, stop being that way. So I, I see it as a silver lining that's sort of a superpower. But my background is three chapters. Yeah, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, went to college at DePaul University in Chicago. And uh, I studied finance and accounting and psychology, thinking I wanted to do something in business, but, but didn't really know what. And my entire life, I've had like two huge passions, personal passions, you know, movies, entertainment, media, music, books, all of that. And then space, like those have been the two. And for whatever reason, you know, I decided to, uh, I, mean, I graduated college and I took a job at a hedge fund through a fraternity connection. DePaul really didn't graduate hedge fund analyst. I thought I wanted to be an investment banker. DePaul didn't graduate investment bankers. DePaul graduated accountants, frankly. That's something I didn't want to do. So Mike, who influenced your decision to move out of traditional finance? Right before I graduated, I, uh, I read a book called The Mailroom about Hollywood talent agents. I didn't even know what a talent agent was up until the point I read that book. I knew I loved movies and I thought maybe I wanted to be an actor or a screenwriter and realized I have zero artistic talent. But I was top like 5% of my class in finance and loved freakishly like looking at financial statements and reading tax accounting books. Like I actually liked these things. And so, you know, I'm like, oh, okay, I'll do a, do a career in finance and, you know, took a job at this hedge fund. But I read a book right before graduation called The Mailroom. And realized there are these people called talent agents that are like the business strategists in the lives of artists. And they do the contract negotiations and, you know, career mapping. And I'm like, well, that's me. Like, I was like the the epiphany (laughs) moment where I just finally self-identified with the profession like like I never had before. And I applied to all the big talent agencies in Hollywood thinking, this is it. I'm going to get in. And not even a single one replied saying, you know, we got your resume, we'll keep it on file, but we're full. Like, no one even responded. And I'm just like, okay, that was dumb. Like, I'm, I'm not going to move to L.A. and become a talent agent. But I, uh, I wrote a letter to a guy that was in the book named Sam Haskell. And his story was pretty extraordinary to me because 
he grew up, you know, in Mississippi, you know, kind of lower middle class, moved himself out to L.A. when he was young. Somehow, and like this is like the maybe 60s or 70s, somehow got a job in the mailroom, had a, you know, thick Southern draw, you know, like I think he was wearing like his seersucker suit. Like he was like, I couldn't be more of an <laughs> L.A. outsider if I tried. But what I never did was never people said I had to change, fix your accent, change your look. It's like I never did that. I just maybe I was too naive, too dumb. I just stayed who I was. And eventually that led to my success, not changing my look, my personality, my character in a town that's always reinventing itself. Right. You know, faceless boob jobs. You know, sometimes you're on top, sometimes you're on bottom. People are always, you know, recreating themselves in Hollywood. And Sam never did. And he credited that with his success. And he right, he discovered Bill Cosby. He packaged the Cosby show. He became one of the most powerful men in television. And I just thought that's the guy I want to be. And so I wrote him a letter basically saying that. And a couple months later, he called me to thank me for this letter, and which I couldn't believe. You know, the way they do it in Hollywood is, you know, it's, it's an assistant that makes the phone calls for the agent. And it's always the same. I have, you know, Clint Roman, you know, for... For Chad Baker, can you please hold? It's like, wait, what? Like, you called me. Why am I now just holding? But that is really the way we do things here. Like, if Chad wants to talk to me, he's got to talk to, to someone else first. <laughs> okay, great. And he has to hold before you jump on the phone. Exactly. <laughs> Good. Okay, well, you guys would fit in perfectly in Hollywood. But, like, I was sitting at my desk at this hedge fund, and I received this phone call. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. This guy's calling me. And uh, we had maybe a 10-minute conversation that changed the course of my life. And he said, yeah, no one's going to hire you in LA at a talent agency when you're living in Chicago. And I'm like, well, I got this job. I don't, you know, don't want to move to LA without something lined up. He's like, well, that's the leap of faith you're going to have to take if you really want this. And everyone that, that takes a shot at it takes that leap of faith. And so I did. I, 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 a year from that, that conversation, I moved to LA in 2004. What happened when you got to LA? Got a job in the mailroom of the William Morris Agency. And that was sort of the beginning of my path through entertainment. And uh, the first person I worked for whose phone calls I was connecting was Charles King, who was the only Black person agent at the company. And uh, his career just started taking off. And, and a few months prior to me working for him, he had signed this, this, this kind of playwright creator named Tyler Perry that no one in Hollywood oh. knew of. And I was there when Charles architected his entire Hollywood career path. And Tyler became a mogul in the year, year and a half I worked for Charles. And that was amazing to see. He signed Prince. I was about ready to leave the business. I was burning out because you, you work an enormous amount and you don't make any money. So it's kind of, and you're expected to live this fancy existence. And so I went into heavy credit card debt because I was trying to like look fancy, wear nice suits, go to hot restaurants, because you kind of have to walk the walk. They always say smoke and mirrors, perceptions, reality in Hollywood. So I was trying to like fit this part as like a lowly, way underpaid assistant. And after a year, it was getting to me and I was about ready to quit and move back to Chicago and just go back to finance. And Charles signed Prince and he's like, you're going to have to coordinate all these parties Prince is going to have at this mansion in the hills. And the first one I did, it was like a uh, like post post Oscar party, like the after after party. And it's like, Julia Roberts, Selma Hayek, like all these people. And I'm like, you know, kind of interacting with them. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not going anywhere. Like, yeah. this is, this is it. <laughs> That's incredible. I stuck around. So thank you, Prince, for, for keeping me, you know, um, you know, in L.A. But long story short, 10 year career in entertainment. I became a talent agent. 
I was working with all kinds of amazing artists, but what, what was most interesting to me, because I've always been a tech geek, is, you know, was Netflix, YouTube, Spotify, these tech companies that were outside of LA that were completely shaking up our business. And I didn't like how agents were just sort of status quo. Like they were tech lemmings. Like, you know, they had Blackberries till the very end. And I'm like, I want to be closer to that innovation. Like those companies that are shaking things up, that's where it's really happening. And we're sort of powerless to them. They're the ones really holding the strings. And so that was sort of the, the planting of the seed of me wanting to get closer to, to tech. At what point did the talent gig become a tech gig? I ended up going to work for Will Smith because I saw how actors and, you know, Ashton Kutcher maybe being the most notable, starting funds, investing in startups. And I thought, well, Will, Will's the biggest, this is back, you know, 2010, 11, like he's the biggest movie star in the world. Like he could get access to any deal. Like this could be a good path into VC for me. And I went to work there and it was an amazing two years, amazing family, but the kids, Willow and Jaden, were coming of age. Willow was launching her music career. Jaden was launching his acting career. And they were all in on that. And so they really didn't have an interest back then in doing anything in, in tech. And after two years, I'm like, you know what? I want to get involved in the LA tech ecosystem. It's a great ecosystem. I see what it could be. You know, LA, Southern California actually graduates more uh, engineers than Northern California. But people don't know that, but they just historically have all migrated north to where most of the companies and opportunities were. They're like, we have a lot of engineering talent. We've got some really great schools down here. We've got some great incubators, accelerators. Bill Gross, Idea Lab is like an OG. Like he was in Pasadena. You know, there was all the industries that I mentioned, like, there's like a, you know, a soup here to, to build an ecosystem that could become as great as Silicon Valley. And I, I want in because it was sort of, it was still the beginning of it. And so I went to work for a former colleague. I went to, I called him up and said, I'm making a career pivot. I will work for free. I will come and do whatever you need. Just please like introduce me to people. He said, sure. Paul Brico. And I started at his accelerator called Amplify in 2011 and ended up at a tech studio and then ended up running a couple companies and advising a bunch of companies in LA. And because I was freakishly good at building Excel models, founders would hire me to build their first Excel model. And you better believe they were all hockey stick. <laughs> and I did that like as a service. And I kind of became an outsourced CFO, COO to early stage startups. And I got to know dozens of LA companies that way. And, Big mistake. Uh, Big mistake. Yeah. You should have you should have called it hockey sticks as a service. There we go. Pass. I'm Pass. out. Pass. <laughs> you know what? Maybe it's not too late. I'm gonna write that down as business <laughs> ideas for retirement. Uh Haas. Hockey stick as a service. <laughs> I love it. And that and uh another SaaS business, sushi as a service, which I think would would go pretty well in LA. I like it. I like it a lot. Those, those are two in my back pocket, but so I got to know the LA, LA tech ecosystem and became, you know, got my education in startups. The startup that I ended up running, we raised $8 million from Google Ventures and Polaris Ventures. And so I, I had, you know, learned what it meant to be an early stage founder. And, and we had to pivot that business. Ultimately, we shut down that business. I hired people, fired people. So I've been in that hot seat. I have empathy. And then in 2015, I launched my second startup, which was Charles King's company, Macro. Uh, he was a you know, 20-year agent, became one of the most successful men in Hollywood, certainly the most successful notable Black executive in Hollywood. He's like, I, I want to leave to start a media company. 
you know, I know you know startups. Can you help me get this off the ground? And so I helped him with the business plan. I helped him identify all the things I was doing. I helped him build a financial model, helped him identify investors. And then we launched the company and, and you know, we needed phones. We needed servers. We needed office space. We needed HR manuals. Like we needed all these things. He was out raising money, you know, reading scripts and meeting producers and meeting with talent. I was sort of doing everything else to get the business up and running. Part of the plan with Macro, that's what it was called, was to launch a venture capital firm. And we did that in late 2016 with Adrian Fenty. And Adrian and Charles went to Howard Law together in the 90s. You know, they're both driven by social change. I think at their at their core, what what you know, what they strive for is to, to drive social change and equality for, you know, for underrepresented communities. And Charles chose the media path to get that done. And Adrian chose a, a political path. And he's from DC. He became a young city council member there. He did two terms in city council. And then he became the youngest mayor in DC's history in 2007, around that time. Youngest mayor. And you know what he did as mayor early on is well documented, but he did something that only two other mayors in the history of the United States have done. And those two other mayors were Mayor Bloomberg in New York and Mayor Daley in Chicago, two pretty legendary U.S. mayors. But what he did was he took control of the public school system and put it under sort of his purview where he had control and he installed uh, a chancellor named Michelle Reed that he brought over from New York. And he basically told all of his kind of cabinet members, department heads saying, you report to Michelle. Michelle runs this city. Whether you're like highway patrol, filling potholes, police, anything, everything that we do is going to be in service of making, you know, education for young people better in this city. And his belief was, if you can do that, problems like poverty, crime, homelessness will be easier to solve. You know, if you can make sure people get an education early in their life, you know, that is sort of a solve for these downstream problems. And he thought nothing is more important than improving the public school system in D.C. And that was unpopular with a lot of entrenched groups like the unions, because they were telling tenured teachers or teachers that have been there, like, if you're not doing well for your students, you're out. Michelle was a savage. And that was unpopular. And so Adrian, I think, you know, politics is hard and you can certainly drive social change, but there's a lot of bureaucracy and entrenched interest. And I think, you know, he realized that there are better avenues to drive social change. And so after he, he, he did one term as mayor and then he left in the office and started advising startups and ended up at, at Andreessen Horowitz. He was recruited by Mark and Ben, you know, and their model obviously is kind of modeled after CAA, another talent agency in Hollywood, which is sort of the services model. So they have all these partners at entries and most of them aren't investing partners, but you have partners that will help you hire or build a model or whatever. And so they wanted to start, they had just invested in Airbnb and Lyft and those companies wanted to expand across the United States. And obviously there's a lot of regu- regulatory issues. And so they hired Adrian to build their government services vertical. And it was him and Larry Summers that did this. Yeah. He helped those companies think through, how do we expand? How do we talk to city council? Who do we talk to in the mayor's office? What are the concerns they're going to have? And he sort of helped grease the wheels for those companies to expand and other things. And he also got to sit in on tons of pitch meetings and learn how Andreessen, the people there, invest and what they invest in and how they think about companies. And after five years of that, he was looking to start his own fund. And that's when we all teamed up to do our first venture fund in late 2016. What made you move from founder to funding? At first, it was just like, Go help Adrian out, kind of if you need a deck, do your thing. Go make a deck, you know, be that utility guy for Adrian. And very quickly we raised capital. He raised capital and started sending me deals. And 
I realized that this is it for me. I love this. It reminded me of being a talent agent, but instead of reading scripts, I'm reading decks. But entrepreneurs are artists in their own right, right? They are the talent. And as a VC, you are there to support the talent. Tell me exactly where you want to go, what's your dream, what's your ambition, and I'll do everything in my power to help get you there. And that's what I did as an agent. And that's what being a great, at least seed stage VC is all about. And I loved it. And very quickly, I think we all realized that, oh yeah, the media stuff, Mike, macro, like, you know, like let's, let's make you full-time. It was called M Ventures. And in 2017, March, I, uh, I moved over and just started as a full-time VC. And I've been doing that ever since. And, you know, I've done a lot of things in my career. I was, you know, kind of nights and weekends, side hustles, a CFO of a record label. Yeah, I've done a lot of things. And uh, this is a job that one can, can, I think, encompass all of that. I can take advantage of all the things I've learned and the networks I've built, you know, across all these different areas. It's the best job that I've ever had. I hope it's the last job. You know, it took me, I think, what was I, maybe like 38, 39, but it took me 39 years to find the best job for me in the world. I hope, you know, I can do this for the rest of my life. Now, VC is a job where every two to three years you have to re-interview to keep the job. We have to go back and raise money and your investors existing and new will be like, show me what you did. What's going on? Like, how are you going to either maintain or get better? And either they give you money or they don't. And if they don't, you know, you're not a VC anymore. You know, maybe you can go join another firm, but you know, maybe you're not a VC anymore. And so the pressure is always on because every three years you're, I guess in the same way, founders, a lot of founders, you know, every, you know, 18 to 24 months, you're out raising and maybe it's kind of the same thing. But I like that. I like that. You know, I guess eventually you become Andreessen and maybe you just pick up the phone and be like, all right, we're raising a billion for this, four billion for that. Are you in, are you out? You know. So tell us about your VC. You guys are doing some really amazing things. Our mentality at Mac, and I can talk more about Mac, but, you know, we, again, that, that book, The Power Law, traces back every generation of VC from like, you know, Rock and Company, you know, which was one of the first, you know, the Excels, the NEAs, all the way through the Andreessen's, the Sequoias, up to today, to the Luxes, the first rounds, the benchmarks. Like it traces sort of the commonalities of each generation of VC firm and, and some that really kind of broke new models and did new things. And there is not really one Black person mentioned in this 400 page book. Our belief at Mac is that. The, the great VC firms of this generation, of this decade or the next few decades, like the teams, the portfolios, the mentalities have to be more reflective of, of the world in which we live. And I'm not just talking about racial or gender diversity, but just, you know, you have to be solving problems for, you know, people beyond the coast, you know, no more dog walking apps for rich, you know, uh, housewives, like, let's solve some real problems for all of us. Um, and let's make sure that everyone gets to participate in the benefit of these startups and the wealth that's created, not just, you know, a select few. And so, you know, we hope that Mac becomes one of those great blue chip firms that is reflective of the world around us. We're a very diverse firm in and out. You know, we're from different places. You know, we're born and raised in Jamaica, New York, St. Louis, Los Angeles, San Clemente, uh, Champaign, Illinois. We've worked in politics. We've worked in Hollywood. We've worked in consulting. You know, we're from different socioeconomic backgrounds. We age from 22 to 50. So we're, we're a diverse firm through and through, which I think, you know, has to be sort of the theme for this generation. And I think we've built a good foundation to be, you know, the Andreessen of our time. And I don't think Andreessen will ever go anywhere, but 
every generation births a few new name brand firms and we're working, you know, to be one of those. And this ties back to space because I also don't think, you know, just as in, you know, the, the first great VC firm was birthed by backing, you know, what they call the traitorous five, these guys that left Shockley Semiconductor Corporation to start Fairchild Semiconductor and, you know, the first VC backed them. And so the VC world, the tech world was sort of birthed by backing a semiconductor business. I think the great firms of this generation have to have a space portfolio. How can you not, you know, how important space is? And we talked about this a lot. Every company will be a space company. If you don't have a space practice, I just don't know if you can truly take the seat as one of the great firms of this, of this time. And so I realized that a couple of years ago. And so we can talk more. I'll stop for a second to talk more how we got into space. I talked about it. it's, a, it's a personal passion. I always wanted to go to space camp. My parents wouldn't send me. But I'm a cute, you know, sci-fi <laughs> for me is perfect because sci-fi is a combination of my, my loves of media entertainment and, and space. So sci-fi geek. And, and I'll talk, I can talk about like the first space investment we made that sort of, you know, broke the dam open for me. But that's kind of where it started was this, this one company. But we were primed to be a space investor, given the government connections, given, you know, the fact that we're in L.A., which is a great space hub and proximity to a lot of these, these new space companies. But it didn't happen until we, we made this first investment. What was your first space investment? What made you pull the trigger on your very first space investment? So we're a, we're a generalist fund. And if you go to our portfolio page, you'll be like, holy shit, like tampons, vegan chicken nuggets. <laughs> what, what are these guys doing? You know, we, again, studying the successful firms of the past, like I think the generalist strategy is is one of the best ones. I think, you know, it's, it's a challenging one because you do have to get smart in a lot of areas and you'll never be as smart as a sector specific fund. But we want to back great founders doing great things all over the place, you know, different geos, different industries. And so, you know, we, we lean into that. And really at the heart of what we do at Seed is backing great people. That's 85% of our calculus is, is the people. Like, let's get to know them and how great are they and basically can they do what they say they're going to do. And great people are great people, whether you're doing biotech, space, Web3, you know, or chicken nuggets. So... I think that's also why we're generalists, because it's like if it's it's going to be on people and not necessarily what they're doing, then, you know, who cares what they're doing, really? I think you're onto something there, because reading one of my kids' books, there's no chips, there's no bread, there's no crumbs allowed in space, because the crumbs will get into all the electronics. So if you can get chicken nuggets onto the space station, like, I think that's going to be huge. What book are you reading your kids that's talking about crumbs in space? That's the second question I want to know. We'll touch off that. <laughs> and I need that book. Can we put it in the link at the notes? Because Yeah. Yeah. I try to buy my kids. You know, it's like, you, you guys, I don't know if you guys have kids. I don't you have kids. But like, you know, as a parent, you start to think about what can I expose my kids to that, that might lead to what their interests are. And, you know, some parents put a golf club in their kid's hand when they're one years old or a football and, you know, I hope my kids are into sports because I think that's important, but you know, you can't see it, but I've got the Lego sets of the uh, uh, Saturn V rocket and then the space shuttle. But my son and I built those over Christmas break last year. And, you know, we watch a lot of space stuff and, you know, I'm sure I'm trying to get him interested in that. We, we play out. No bias. No bias. I haven't taken him to a launch. Like we were supposed to go see the, uh, the first Axiom launch 
at Kennedy and it got pushed and we missed it. But that's something I'm looking forward to is taking my son to my first launch and his first launch. So we'll, we'll have to figure that out. But yeah, like it'd, it'd be kind of great if he found an interest in space, but we'll see. So what's Mac's secret? How did you meet the right contacts? I should have looked up before who sent us the deal because it wasn't, wasn't like we were seeking it out, but we got introduced to this founder named um, Siamak Abaldi. And his company is called Utivate, U-T-V-A-T-E. And he had just gotten into Y Combinator. And we met him as he was sort of, I guess, midway through. And, you know, there's the demo day at the end. And as a VC, it's like you hope to get in before demo day because prices kind of go through the roof at YC if you don't get in before. And, and so I remember I flipped to San Francisco and we met them. I forget they're like they're in the South Bay. But Adrian and I went to go meet them at their office. And their office was actually inside of the incubator that backed them a, a firm called uh, 50 Year, which is a really, really great kind of deep tech firm. Maybe that's how we met them, but we met Simac. And again, going back to like, we bet on people and, you know, what Andreessen or someone calls the, you know, the earned secret. What, what is it about this founder team and what they've done previously in their personal life or professional life that has given them sort of insight to where we're headed in the future that most people don't, don't even know yet. You know, like Mark Andreessen, was using the internet at University of Illinois and couldn't get online. There was no great you know, on-ramp to the internet, no browser experience. And he's like, well, this, this experience sucks. And eventually everyone's going to be using the internet. I should build a better on-ramp. So he was living out there in the future and had this earned secret. And he built you know, the Mosaic browsers with, for the inevitable future where everybody's using the internet. So we, we sort of look for those folks that are sort of living in the future and have like this earned secret. And and so Simac had, um, he had started his career, may not started, but spent a bulk of his career at Astronus. And he was at Astronus when Andreessen invested. So Adrian remembered, you know, the diligence on that deal. And Astronus is a satellite company, or I'm sure your listeners probably know. And Simac's job there was to kind of identify kind of all the ground segment partners that Astronus could work with, you know, people that were making, you know, antennas, user terminals, all of that. And he really couldn't find anyone that he thought this is the perfect solution, you know. And and you know, I think he was he was sort of driven to uh, to Chimeta, and he got to know them, and he ended up being recruited by Chimeta. And I think on the surface he thought, well, this this is the company, and so he ended up going to work there. And that's you know that's the Bill Gates founded company that's building phased array antennas and user terminals, all that. And when he got there, and I don't, you know, I want to talk too much shit. And I, I honestly don't know Kaimeta well at all, but you know, this was, I forget the year, but it was a while ago when he got them. He's like, there was no there, there, like the culture was bad. There was all kinds of turnover. I could just tell like it wasn't a good place and the tech wasn't good. And so he left to start Udebate. He's like, I kind of want to build what the promise of Kaimeta was and what Astronus needs. And you know what he says, he's like, what the, the, the tech at Kaimeta at the time, Udivate built in like three months for their demo UYC demo day presentation. He's like, that's basically the, the state of Kometa Tech was our demo for YC demo day. So we met him right before that demo day and we loved his story. We loved how technical he was. He was just a thoughtful guy. He recruited a really great team. And we're like, we're in. This is great. And if I'm being honest, didn't know a whole lot about the explosion of the satellite market. I really hadn't dug in deep to anything space. I was just a fan of it. But we thought this guy's amazing, very technical, you know, did sub diligence of like, oh yeah, there's a lot of telecom satellite companies out there and they're going to need to, you know, partner with antennas. And he's, you know, they're, they're looking at sort of the car and boat and plane market. They want to, you know, build better antennas to be put on planes so internet access can be better. And we thought, well, that, you know, 
that seems like a, a, a good, a good mission. And so, you know, through backing him and through the diligence we did, we did kind of get to like, Oh my God, we're going to go from like, you know, what, three, 3000 satellites in, in orbit to 40,000 over the next decade. And, you know, look at all these, these companies doing it and bringing, you know, launch costs down. And it's like, wow, there's, there's some stuff here. And then I think we, through, through Udebate, we met a guy named Nathan Mintz, who had co-founded Eparis, which is a drone defense company. He founded that with ABC and Joe Lonsdale, and then left to go start a new company called Spartan that's building smart radar. And Nathan had spent, I don't know, 10 years at Raytheon and a few other primes. And his job was to know all the, the space startups for Raytheon. So they could kind of see what's going on there. Should we invest? Should we acquire? Should we build something that competes? So he knew everyone. He knew everyone in the space and he liked us. And he just started introducing us to tons of space entrepreneurs. At that point, I decided, you know, I'm going to say yes to any intro to any space founder as awesome or dumb as the idea seems. I'm just going to take a million meetings and learn as much as I can. Again, because I don't come from this world, I just want to learn. This is like my my you know master's degree in, in aerospace here, and so I took you know dozens of pitch meetings, and and one of them was Laura Crabtree that Nathan sent us to, and she was leaving SpaceX and you know launching a company with another co-founder of Eparis named Max Mednick, the LA guy. We met them, and you know one of the things we look for in teams or in a person is sort of that. You know, Jobs Wozniak thing, but you know, someone who's like a visionary, who's charismatic, who can inspire and fundraise and hire, and then some that person who is you know in the Excel weeds and is a is a you know just savage operator and on the metrics and just you know just behind the scenes. And sometimes it's the same person, but it is hard because the skill sets are different. One requires you to be upfront. And one requires you to be sort of behind the scenes. And, and certainly there are people that can do both, but usually it's a, it's a duo. And, uh, you know, Laura and Max are that duo to perfection where Max is the savage operator and, and Laura is sort of out front and we love them. And we were one of the first firms to commit to Epsilon three in their pre-seed round. And Laura is another one of those super connectors. She knows, she knows everyone in part because she's just been in the industry for a while and is well known, but also because her customers at Epsilon three are space startups. And so she would send us companies that she likes and, hey, fund this company so they could pay us. So they could, they could, you know, sign up <laughs> for our service. Alter- yeah. Alter- so it was like very, very like self-serving on both of our parts where I wanted to meet more space founders and she, you know, needed more space founders to get funded. And I can't even tell you how many people she's introduced me to, but a lot of folks in our portfolio, you know, it's the beauty of it. Like, you know, the, the network effect is just an amazing thing. Like Cymac at Udivate leads to, you know, Nathan at Spartan. And it's just, you know, and I think like you have to work hard for these founders. And I think, you know, I, that's also what motivates me because if, if you're a deadbeat for your founders, they're not going to send a company to you. Like they like, avoid this person. And so, you know, we work hard in part because these, these introductions are our lifeblood and look what it's done. Like, you know, we've built this, and I think the best founders and the best people know the best founders. And I wish I could say it was by design that we built up this amazing portfolio of space companies. I forget how we met the, the Stoke guys, but I think that's also tied to, to Udivate. But we met those guys and, you know, they were in earned secret, you know, 10 years, 15 years at Blue Origin. Tom and Andy, you know, worked together kind of like, you know, you guys from, from, from Terrametric. But, you know, those guys are like, yeah, you know, Blue is great and, and SpaceX is great, but, you know, these are companies run by billionaires who really want to go and, you know, settle other planets and really drive humanity forward. And, 
you know, it's less about building the Boeing 737 of, of launch. I mean, that's kind of what Falcon is, but, you know, Elon's got much bigger ambitions. I feel like Falcon is just, you know, it's the foundation for Starship and it's all about Starship and Mars and colonization. Like, so they're like, we feel like there's an opportunity to build that workhorse launcher that's designed to launch daily um, at a very low cost that can be reused both, you know, upper and lower stage. And we thought, well, that's, that's an interesting angle. And again, naivete, I didn't realize there were like 150 launch companies that were funded, you know, operating various stages. You know, I knew of SpaceX, I knew of Blue, I knew of Rocket Lab, Relativity, Astronauts, a few others, but, but not the whole list. And if I did, I may not have invested. And, and I asked at that point in time, didn't really realize that the successful rock companies, rocket companies were sort of, you know, they did launch, but then they did something else. And that something else was usually the way they made their most of their money uh, or their profit. But we liked stuff. We liked the team and we thought, all right, well, we're going to go from 4,000 to 40,000, you know, sats in orbit and someone's got to take them up. And second stage reusability seems to be a bit of a holy grail that people have been after. And these guys have a unique take on it. And they're a great team. Like, let's, let's back them. And so we were one, of, I think we were the first in their seed round, um, they did a pre-seed. We were the first institutional investor to commit to funding their seed. We gave them a term sheet. And then we had to bring NFX in because their round, I think it was $7 million, And we write checks at Mac for fund two, like average two and a half. And so, um, you know, we needed to bring in a bigger investor. And so we brought in Morgan Beller, who had just joined as partner at NFX. And to her credit, you know, she had never done a space deal. And NFX is, you know, network effect businesses. And Stoke really isn't that. Maybe you could stretch it, but she loved it. And she, she, you know, led their seed rounds, which I think was a very brave move. And, you know, they've introduced us to others. What's the best resource a VC has that they don't often know about? I also now can ping, you know, our founders for help with diligence, you know, on certain things. I'm looking at a company building a new microprocessor right now that, you know, claims to be faster and take one sixtieth of the power of existing microprocessors, and called up Clint and Patrick and said, "Hey, can you guys help me uh, figure out if this is real or not real?" And that's so in- that's so invaluable because I'm not a technical person, and uh, and so using our founders to help with diligence, and, and hopefully, you know, if something is interesting, maybe it's valuable to you at some point down the road. So it's a kind of a virtuous cycle as we grow the portfolio, it's a better network, more deal flow, better deal flow, and we're better able to, to diligence companies. And then the last thing that benefits from all that is sort of start to build a thesis around, you know, where you think the best opportunity is in space. You know, at first we were sort of just responding to great introductions, but now I've sort of, you know, I really thought through where do I, where do I want to focus my efforts? Cause there's a lot of space companies where do I want to focus my efforts? Where do I think the most opportunity for a venture capitalist is in the space sector? Because um, we, you know, we need we need hundred x outcomes. I write I underwrite to hundred x outcomes. That's I kind of have to have some confidence that I think a company can can exit at hundred x from where I come in. And some companies, you know, I just I just don't know. I think they're amazing. Looking at a a really cool solar company that's building more efficient solar cells. And, you know, I think it's incredibly valuable be valuable to some of our portfolio companies. I just don't know if they could become a huge, you know, billion, $10 billion business, you know, in the next 10 years. And so that has to factor into, you know, space stations and looking at a company that's building sort of, you know, developing modules that will spin for gravity. And I think 
But yeah, I mean, any any sci-fi movie has that spinning module in the in the space station or the ship, and like to me, that's an inevitability, right? We're gonna have that. You know, people will want gravity in space. You know, is it a next ten year thing? Is asteroid mining a next ten year thing? I mean, maybe. You know, some some companies' planetary resources are getting funded now, but like you also got to think about timing. But I think I've developed you know a good framework and where I think you know a lot of opportunity lies for for us. Something amazing that's the first. And there's a reason why it's the first, you know, sometimes there's a reason why there haven't been any and, and there hasn't been a real unlock, but, you know, what has happened that could be an unlock where a company like this could now be feasible. And I love meeting companies like that. There are a lot of companies out there with great ideas in the space industry and one of the most common things I hear all around the space industry, and you know, it's it, it's small and everyone's connected to everyone in, in especially the new space segment. But one of the, the most frequent questions I hear is like, how do you get a venture capitalist attention? You know, you, you hear stories like I've sent a million slide decks out and no one responds. Like what really is the thing as a venture capitalist that gets your attention that says, hey, I really need to take a look at this. Yeah, I think the number the number one thing, and this is probably true of all VCs, is who is referring you the company. I think the quality, strength of referral source is the number one thing. And in some cases, if the source is strong enough and there's a certain type of VC, they may not need to do much more diligence. My partner, Adrian, said this once. I don't know if you guys know Barry Gordy, really famous record executive who discovered the Supremes, Diana Ross, like the guy's a legend. If Barry Gordy sent you an artist and said, hey, this person's going to be a star, probably don't want to question that. Like, you know, like this person's probably a star and you should lean into that. And so if Barry Gordy is sending you a space startup saying, this is the real deal, I'm jumping in immediately. Now, you know, you got to figure out who's the Barry Gordy and who's not, because it's not always obvious. But, you know, Nathan Mintz is a Barry Gordy to me. Laura Crabtree is a Barry Gordy. Clint, if you, whoever you sent me, you're a Barry Gordy. I, I'm going to jump in. So that's that's number one is like find as a founder, find, you know, a Barry Gordy in your network and have them send your deck to some VCs that they know, because that that will instantly get you attention. I'm really glad you didn't talk to Chad and Andrew before for meeting with me. Like you might have got an entire. <laughs> no, no, no. hold story. on here, Clint. I was, <laughs> I was gonna say, circling back to the talent agency part. You know, Clint tapped out because he reached the pinnacle of his career finding talent right here, <laughs> <laughs> right on the line. No problem. Yeah, exactly. Right. Hey, but he found it. He Mike found dropped it. right there. Right there. I say that because, you know, Terrametric, you guys were in the mix of everything, especially when it, when it came to sort of Earth observation and, yeah, anything sort of related to geospatial. You have really great opinions formed over many, many years. Clint, you know, you guys were operators in the space. So if you tell me something's interesting, like it's that Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000 hour, you have it. Like, it's like, all right, I'm leaning in. So. Yeah. So now I'm blushing a little bit. Those those of you who are audio and only can't see it, but I'm I'm blushing <laughs> a little bit. And flattery definitely works on me. What definitely doesn't work is is LinkedIn outreach. I, I don't look at deals sent to me through LinkedIn, even cold email. Like I, I hate to say that because like 
in, when we fundraised, I was the king of cold email. I think I raised like $30 million from cold emailing LPs. So, you know, it can, my whole career, you know, I sent a cold letter to the guy from the, the book and he called me. So my whole life has been shaped by, by cold outreach. So not to say that it can't work. I think it's, uh, there's an art to it, especially, you know, if you're trying to get a VC to get you interested and it's about, you know, how can you capture their attention in three sentences? not, you know, a dissertation on your company. Like I, I see a ton of good ideas out there in, in, in the space industry, but I think it would be awesome to hear, you know, definitely from, from the horse's mouth, what are the top three things like LinkedIn cold outreach being one, like what are the top three things that you just wish founders wouldn't do that would just make your, your opinion start a whole lot better of them? Yeah. I mean, those are two of them, I think, you know, cause for, for me is like one, listen, if you can't find or guess my email, like that's the first level of filtration. Like forget LinkedIn, guess my email, figure it out. It's out there. So it's like, all right, at least you sent it to my email and not my LinkedIn. So I'll, and it's in my inbox. I'm going to see it. I, I don't go to LinkedIn that often or the messages. And then, you know, it's the, the long email, cold email, where it's, you're really trying to put everything your company is about, you know, in the body is, just doesn't work. I, I just, that I, you know, I'll just file it away, but it's hard. I get it. Correct. Correction on that. You read the first line and the last line, right? I, I'll read the subject line and maybe the first few sentences, but like. Not the last line. No, I don't. Oh, okay. When I was reading scripts, I'd read the first 20 pages and the last 20 pages and I'd skip the, you know, middle hundred pages, but it's hard. Like I, you know, cause I, I'm not probably a Barry Gordy in most people's eyes. I think Mac is a newer brand. You know, if I was at Sequoia or Bessemer, I think people would just sort of like anyone I sent them, they would say yes to. But so I think we're getting there. And in space, I think we're, we're getting there. I think, you know, if I'm sending a deal to someone, they'll be like, oh, you know, oh, for sure. Well, it's also about, you know, we're, we're relatively young. What, what partly gets you there is your company's success, you know, becoming and we're just, we're just young, you know, like, so our companies need time to become the billion dollar businesses they're going to become. And absolutely you'll get us there. And so, you know, you just have to be patient. VC is a long game. And once, once you're there, then you're there, right. Then it's just, you can, but it usually takes about, you know, 10 years. Diamond studded Rolexes, phantoms. Right. Oh, all, all of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, the fact that I don't know what any of that is, is a problem. Like, I, I feel like I'm, I'm, let's all come on. Let's go to Art Basel, Miami this year, you know, <laughs> just for like a, a cultural deep dive in the crypto. Pro. It's just down, just down the road, Clint, just down the yeah, road. It's not far. I, I've seen like a ton of your portfolio company founders. And, and one of the things that I, I consistently hear about working with Mac versus a lot of other VC firms out there is like all the companies say we're different because we really go to bat for our founders or we do this or do that for our founders. You know, and that's, you know, I, I hate to say it, but one of the things that you hear is like, we're different because, and, you know, I think what I've consistently heard from people who have you know, taking an investment from Mac is that you guys really do step in and go to bat for the founders. You help them, you mentor them, you show them the way. And it's not just backing it up with a check, but you back them up with effort and time and energy. And I think that's one of the things that that many founders have as a struggle is it's wonderful to get a check 
But then when the VC checks out after the check, like that, that's just a nightmare for them, you know, and, and they need that extra support. And, you know, I think your background from a talent perspective has been huge in shaping the way that you approach the industry. But if you were looking, you know, going to give advice to founders on how they should, especially in the space industry, you know, what should founders and their teams do to find the venture capital company that's that's right for them? Yeah, every founder, every VC says they work hard and they're value add and, and you know, some really are and some really aren't. And I think, you know, some of them that, you know, write the check and, and that's it. And some, 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 sometimes that's all you want, you know? And I think what we've sort of found is that as companies progress and get further along, that they honestly lead their VCs less and less. Like it may be more surgical and you'll need them for certain things. But, you know, our biggest company so far in terms of just valuation, yeah, like in the early days, there was a lot of touch points. And now they're just sort of like, hey, we're grown up. You know, we've gone to college, you know, come and visit you. And if we need some money or we need a care package, we'll call. But like, let us go and, and become fully functioning adults. And you know, like that's, that's great too. And, and obviously, you know, VC famously just, it doesn't scale, right? It's a service business. Services businesses don't scale well. So we need that to happen. You know, we can't give the detailed level of attention to every company as we add, you know, 30, 40, 50 new companies, every fund, it wouldn't scale. Like it would just, our efforts would naturally get diluted. So we need companies to hit the next phase of their life and have a different need from their investors not that we'll ever go away where, you know, I always want to stay in touch with my founders because I learned things from them. Hopefully I can pass along intelligence. You know, I'm on the front lines meeting dozens of companies every month. Like what's happening out there? Like I want to, I want to make sure I pass that along, but probably need different things when you clear series A and B. I would interject there a little bit in the sense that having participated in a number of startups now throughout my career, the most successful ones are, have been where, the board members and, and VCs being part of the board have continued to guide that company throughout its life cycle, even in the more mature stages. Because at the end of the day, they always inevitably go off the rails somewhere and they need that continued guidance and participation. So I, I think it's super important to have VCs and investors that are, and board, maybe it's more board members at the end of the day that are aligned with your values and direction and, and where you're headed as a company to continue to, to provide that guidance and guardrails. I definitely agree. I just think like, I spend a lot of my time getting our companies ready for their series A, understanding what series A investors need to see to fund you know, I'm not talking to series C investors all that much. So, you know, if you're going from B to C, your B round investor, in theory, would have much more intelligence around what you should be gunning for to make those Series C investors excited. You know, if you're gearing up to IPO, you know, those later stage VCs, that's what they do with their companies. They, they get them ready to IPO. Now, as our companies mature and, you know, IPO, I'll get more exposure to that. But right now, a later stage VC is just going to be, you know, much better at, at preparing you for, for IPO are walking you through a, a merger with a big company. But, you know, I think a lot of seed investors do stay on the board and the founders want them there because it's like, you were here from inception. You know the heart of this company. You were here at birth. You were in the delivery room. Like, I, I want you there as sort of, you know me, like as a gut check, help me manage the other VCs or the other board members. Like there's, there's often a bond formed, you know, at this early stage 
and so, you know, I, I do see that happen. And, and, you know, I'm on the board of a, a few post series, a companies can't do that with a hundred companies. You know, it's just like, at some point I got to move on to the, to the, to the newer, to the newer folks. But I think as, as a, as a founder, when you're looking to raise that, you know, first institutional round, it is important to understand who you're getting into business with. It's a, it's a marriage, right? This is a 10 year, you know, in most cases, 10 year relationship. Clint, I think I sent you a pretty detailed email one time about what you should think about and questions to ask, you know, your VCs and we could, we could publish that somehow, but like, there's a lot of stuff, but I think at a base level, you know, one, it's like, do I like this person? You know, do I want to be in business with them? But there are some more like specific things and understanding, you know, a fund's ability to do follow-on investing. You know, do you have, do you allocate for follow-on? If you're a hundred million dollar fund, do you plan to invest all hundred million into new investments or will you hold money back? Because I'll tell you, 75% of our, our companies have needed kind of in between capital, between seed and A for whatever reason. And if your investors, your major investors can't back you when you need a little more, you need a bridge to sort of hit those A metrics, you could be in trouble because it's it's hard to go out to new investors in, a, in an in-between round. You kind of want your insiders to fund that. And if your major investors don't allocate follow-on or don't typically do follow-on in in-between rounds, you could be in trouble. So I think you, you want to find an investor who's going to support you and not blindly, right? We're not just, you know, if you're totally shitting the bed and you need more money to continue to shit the bed, like we're not going to give you more money. But if you showed progress and you just need, you know, six, 12 more months, we're going to give you more money. And so I think you want to understand that from your investors. You want to talk to other founders that have worked with them. Are they present? Are they the kind of folks that, you know, they want to get an update every month, but really they're not doing a whole lot. They're hard to get a hold of. They're not prepared in board meetings, you know, and you want to do your research around that. And I think some folks don't, you know, they get a term sheet and they, they're excited. They feel like, oh my God, like I'm so lucky to have this term sheet. Like, let me take it. And like, no, like you're the special ones, you know, we're, we're the ones lucky to be able to invest in, in you. So you know, make sure you pick the right partner and do the homework. And, you know, not everyone does it. And it can be kind of disastrous in some situations. I mean, I think that's that's super important to have that that type of support as you go through this process. You know, but we're we're starting as we get to the end of our time here today, Mike, where, you know, we always ask the question, what's the most exciting thing you see going on in the space industry, but I'd like to reframe that a little bit because of the nature of your your position, and then add a second question to that. We're in a because we're in a market where things are tightening up a little bit on money for venture capital and startups. But the first question, rather than what's the most exciting thing you see happening in the space industry, what's the phone call you hope you get, or the email or the deck you hope you see next? from the space industry that you think would just be amazing just in case someone out there is working on it and and you don't know about them. So what's the, what's the call you hope to get? And then in this market, that's tightening a little bit, what advice would you give to founders out there in the space industry? Great questions. So the first question is an easy one for me and it's related in part to, to you guys, but the explosion of, of earth observation as an industry and uh, you've all this terrestrial kind of earth data that's being collected and it's been a bit of a holy grail. And I've talked to Clint about this, but I've been talking to Jeff Cruzy about this. And, and, you know, Jeff sort of says, you know, I want an unreal engine 
which is the platform that a lot of video games are built on, where someone can go and build applications using, you know, earth data. And the way I sort of think about it is like, look at GPS. GPS has been abstracted away so beautifully that anyone can build an application doing anything using GPS data, whether it's, you know, Uber or Pokemon Go or you name it, you know, with just a few lines of code, you can, you know, leverage this amazing complex system, you know, of, of, of you know, location and, and precision and timing data, like to build any kind of product that has delivered enormous value to all of us here on earth. Can we have something like that, a system like that for, for earth data, not GPS data, but where anyone can build any kind of app from a silly Pokemon Go to something very serious using, you know, all the imagery and intelligence data we're getting about our planet, but making it dead simple where just, you know, a developer in college that's dabbling could build something. And, you know, that will require all of the data companies to sort of become standardized and put their information into a platform where developers can build products on it. And, you know, I think it's a bit of a walled garden approach now, and everyone sort of wants to be the place. And you're seeing siloed products being created for insurance or ag or weather. But, I, I, you know, a beautiful sort of iOS platform that anyone can build data, build a product using any kind of earth data, terrestrial or space, and layer in other types of data as well. Like that, I think, would be enormous, um, enormous opportunity and, and a big unlock for people on earth to do all kinds of cool things with the amazing you know, data that's being collected about our planet. So that, that I've been looking for. So if anyone, and I've met some really interesting approaches and you know, there's some really smart founders taking different swings of the bat at this. And so I'm sort of still on that like kind of information gathering different approach you know, stage. And I think you know, some things time has to pass before I think all the players will you know, be willing to uh, to put their their stuff on a platform like this. But that so that's that. In terms of advice to to founders in this kind of market correction environment, it it is tough. You know, and you know, as a VC with you know a, a space portfolio of companies, many of whom you know have heavy capex, you know, factored into their strategy. I'd rather hold back some of my money. To spend more on them if they need it to, to bridge themselves, you know, over the next two or three years. So I've pulled back on companies that you know are doing things that require heavy capex and space. As much as I, I I just got to know one pretty well and just had a pass, and you know, it's it's tough because I like a lot of these companies. I think they're important companies, and it sucks because I have some of those, and I hope other investors don't you know have that that same reservation, but they will. So that being said, you know, I do think there's a lot of dry powder out there. There's a lot of funds, big funds that have capital to invest. We have to keep investing. I think, you know, the best firms, you know, invest in good and bad times alike. And so they don't stop. But what they do is they do become more cautious. So I think there's this, this flight to, to extreme quality to companies that won't need enormous sums of money in the near term that can get to revenue, you know, in two years but it's not three, four years until you hit meaningful revenue. I think those are the types of businesses that, that, that get funded. So it's, it's companies that have shown great progress and, you know, can get to revenue relatively quickly. You know, and if you're, if you're not one of those, it, it is going to be tough. You know, I think if you are, I think in that case, if you're not one of those, I think you got to cut costs and it's like, how do you survive? You know, 
become a cockroach and just like, can you get, probably not get to profitability if you're a space company, but like, can you just cut costs and just work on R&D, but don't go build that satellite. Don't go sign the contract, you know, where you need to commit, you know, millions of dollars because it's going to be tough to get capital. I think in the years ahead, unless you've just, you're a top 1%, you know, and I'll put Stoke in that. I just, I've seen what Stoke has been able to accomplish they're, you know, a year, year and a half ahead of their schedule every quarter. What they'll be able to do by the end of this year, you know, something that only like three or four other rocket launch companies have been able to do. They're an extraordinary team that has made, you know, remarkable progress. You can go see it. So I think they're a CapEx heavy company in a, in a pretty crowded space. Their next round will be a B round. And I think they'll be successful in, in raising that. So it's companies like that. I hope it's companies. I think it's companies like Starfish. It's companies like Zona. I think, I mean, obviously I'm incredibly biased, but you know, those are, are CapEx heavy companies as well. Maybe Starfish a little less so, but they've all performed extremely well with extremely great teams. I think they'll be able to raise capital in, in the months ahead, but we'll see. There haven't been a lot of big a or B rounds that have been attempted since you know, the market's sort of blown up. So I'm not quite sure what will happen, but I do think because there's money out there and if you're great, you'll be able to raise capital. And if you need a little more time to become great, you may have to just like cut costs and survive, which is tough. Great insight and great advice. But Mike, you've been incredibly gracious with the time that you've given us today. And I, I know that the, the groups and the people that listen to this podcast will be absolutely enthused to hear this episode. So thanks for joining and for, for giving us the time. I'll talk to you again in six years, right? Should we schedule it now? <laughs> get on the phone? We'll, we'll get the next episode on the books for six years out. All right, guys. Good to see Perfect. you. Thanks a lot. All right. Later. Great to see you again, Mike. That was awesome having Mike on the show. But you can't see because we're audio only, but Chad is doing his best Ric Flair impression in the background. <laughs> like he was super pumped to have to have Mike on the show. It's good you can't see that. Yes, it, it, it is, is good because <laughs> the world would be cringing, just cringing. I don't know. I think, you know, people would be subscribing left and right. It'd just be bringing people in. No, I, I always bring this back to that awkward scene in Back to the Future where he does the whole guitar riff at the end and just the whole crowd is looking at him like, oh, that that was it. He finishes up with that last really sharp guitar riff and he's and like it's all silent. Exactly. That that was the Chad moment. There. But the point is, he was way ahead of his time. We'll put that <laughs> out there too. I mean, people didn't know just yet. <laughs> And Mac Ventures is is way ahead of their time too. I mean, I think they're 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 doing a great job. Yeah, you know, Mike brought up a lot of really great points. Diversity in the space of space is just super important. Having the you know the insight to see what what's coming next, and you know the advice that he had for founders and startups and new companies, I think is just absolutely critical for them to be able to get exposure because i've seen just a ton of really good ideas out there that find it really tough to find the light of day it's great to hear some of mike's insights on on how they can get their their ideas to market absolutely i i totally agree and and you know you'll know space is mainstream when he's got his chicken nuggets on the space station <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs>
Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, my, one of the coolest things from the show today was like expanding my vocabulary. Like I want to be a crypto bro so bad that I can't stand it. Let that, let that pass Clint. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like what's a crypto bro. I I couldn't believe I just wasn't in the know on that one. I'll take the phantom. That's for sure. Uh, No problem there. (laughs) Uh, Does it fit three kids in the back? Sure. I'm sure there must be a version. Right? It's got a big yeah. trunk. I mean, if one doesn't fit, you can strap them <laughs> hey, down, bungee yeah. cord it in. <laughs> yeah, but I can do that in my current car. So, mm. yeah. But, you know, I think, you know, if, if someone from the space industry wanted to have a look at a venture capital company, like Mac Venture Capital has definitely, you know, changed my view of of what to expect from the venture capital industry. They really get behind their founders, great advice. They've done a good job of helping them, you know, find their way in the market, find other, you know, investors become part of the, the program. And, you know, I, I can't say enough good things about all of what I've heard from other founders within the industry and, and getting to know Mike over, over the, the last time period has, has been great. There's no doubt there's great ones and good ones, but, you know, I think it's all about alignment and having that match. It's just, it's got to be a match for it to to work well. Alignment's everything. Alignment is absolutely everything. I think, you know, in today's market, where we're starting to see a a tightening of of funding, it's great to get the advice on just, um, you know, for a lot of the founders out there and founding teams to find a way to cut costs, get to the next level, make it through the correction. Because, you know, with the average age of, of founders out there probably being, fairly new in their career, you know, it's probably a challenge because they've never seen a market correction before. True. True. I mean, they, they come every so often. They're not every day. Yep. So for all of you out there, if you want to get in touch with Mac Venture Capital, absolutely do it. Find out, you know, what's going on in the market, what the, the critical path is to success in bringing your company to the industry. And we look forward to having you all again for the next episode of Space in 60. Until next time. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Space in 60. Stay tuned as we explore new journeys into space with our upcoming guests and talk about the evolution of the industry. Be sure to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. And we would love your input and feedback. So send us your comments and questions and we'll try to feature them in a future podcast. We'll catch you on the next episode of Space in 60, where new space speaks. (laughs) 